Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Glenn Frankel about shooting Midnight Cowboy. First, wanted to let you know that you can go to booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And for the latest on this show, follow us on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Books on Pod. This is Melissa Mertz, author of All Right, All Right, All Right, The Oral History of Days to Confused. You're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Glenn Frankel is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and best-selling author of The Searchers and High Noon. His newest book is Shooting Midnight Cowboy. Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic. Glenn, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. It's a beautiful day. I live in Arlington, Virginia, and it looks like, you know, we're really into spring, so I'm good. I'm very glad to hear that here in Austin. It's uh, looking a little bit drearier and overcast. It's a midnight cowboy sort of day for us, I guess, as we uh, get into the full swing of spring. But uh, I was fascinated by this book. I have to admit, I had not watched the movie before reading the book. I was able to watch it last night and was just blown away by it. But for you as somebody who has obviously done so much great work throughout your life, why did you want to put such focus into Midnight Cowboy? Well, you know, for the last decade or so, I've been writing books about great American movies Uh, and how they were made, but equally important, um, the era they reflect, the context, the historical context around them. I find that movies are a wonderful looking glass into the past. And I'd done, as you know, uh, two making of the movie books about the searchers, John Ford's Great Western and High Noon with Gary Cooper. I wanted to get a little more contemporary I was also looking for perhaps a more uh, more adult themes, um, and you know, Midnight Cowboy is a movie I've loved ever since I first watched it, which was way back in 1969 when it came out. And of course, that's a very rich historical era—the the, the late 60s. You know, the the murders of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, uh, the Vietnam War is raging, Richard Nixon's in the White House. There just was a lot of rich terrain there, both in New York City itself and in the country. So the combination of the two—a movie that was really groundbreaking in terms of its adult themes and and the way it was done, uh, plus an historical era that we're still still arguing about today in many ways. (laughs) The movie is based on a book by the same name, written by James Leo Herlihy. After moving to New York City, Herlihy wrote and toiled, doing much more of the latter for quite a while. What finally inspired him to write Midnight Cowboy? Well, he comes to New York, you're right, in the early 50s, he wants to be a writer with a capital W, but he's also he's a very handsome young guy, um, and he also is an actor uh, and a playwright. So he's trying to make his way. He goes through lots of odds and end jobs, as you can imagine, but he's got some supporters. He hooks on to the sort of uh, a large gay arts community in New York, makes friends there, um, and again, because he's a good-looking guy and because he's an interesting young guy, he, he hooks on with that. So he has some success. It takes a while, but he has a play on Broadway in the late 50s. He has a novel that's not only published um, his first novel, All Fall Down, but becomes a, a Hollywood movie. Not a terribly good one, but nonetheless, you know. So Jim is on his way. But it's an era when, you know, Jim has kept his sexuality very private 
And you, it's hard to see it in his early writings as well. He's a careful man. I mean, remember, you know, um, uh, so sodomy, as it was called, was illegal in 49 of the 50 states. Uh, so Jim was careful about all this. But with Midnight Cowboy, he's beginning to emerge more. There are some identifiable gay characters. There are some gay moments, just as there are some heterosexual moments in the book. He's stepping out, if you will, and he's describing life in Times Square in that era, which is, um, you know, very transactional, shall we say, when it comes to sex and entertainment. Uh, so the book is, the book doesn't do very well at first. I mean, it gets a little support in the gay community, but generally people don't know it. But uh, it's lingering there, and that's where a film director from the UK, a guy named John Schlesinger, who's about to make his you know, American debut, looking for a movie, looking for a subject, uh, looking for a book that will allow him to come to the States and do something special. And John hooks on to Midnight Cowboy and brings it with him. So the book is filled with scenes of heterosexual and homosexual intercourse, sadomasochism, fellatio, gang rape, prostitution, and illegal drug use. So how does it get made at a time when the film industry is still fairly conservative with the content of its films? Well, it's been a long, hard road for Hollywood. Remember, we're talking now about 67, 68. When Schlesinger shows up with this thing, it's not like anybody jumps to say, yeah, that's great. All the <laughs> things you just ticked off, Trey, are not making it. You know, the studios, for the most part, had already seen the novel and turned it down. But Schlesinger is offering them something different and, and himself, if you will. And, uh, you know, and he hooks on with an independent movie producer named Jerry Hellman, a New Yorker, uh, which is important because Midnight Cowboy is mostly set in New York and he needs somebody like that. Jerry doesn't care for the novel very much either, he told me, but, it, but he really wants to work with John Schlesinger, who's coming in with a couple, has done a couple of really lively movies in the UK, Billy Liar and Darling specifically, that have gotten a lot of attention and made some money. So they go to United Artists, this sort of little um, anti-studio studio. It's the smallest, it's the most out there. They too want to work with John Schlesinger and for a very minimal budget, they're willing to take a chance on this. The other part of it though, Trey, equally important, you know, Hollywood is in a slide, a sort of so, slow slide to not insolvency exactly, but the old movie genres, the Westerns, the movie musicals, the Doris Day rom-coms, they're not really capturing the younger audience, the baby boomers who are coming in and who are, you know, the folks that they want to appeal to. So they've made some changes. They've gotten away with the old censorship system by 68 called the production code. They put in the rating system, which was originally considered a real reform that would allow for more adult themes and for more complex stories. Hollywood is at a loss. They know the old things aren't working. They're looking for new stuff. It's a time when you can kind of get away with things because nobody knows exactly what's going to succeed. So for a very small budget, United Artists, as I say, like it's $1.1 million originally, um, they're willing to take a chance on John Schlesinger and Midnight Cowboy. Uh, experimentation was the name of the game in that era, and that clearly carried over to the film industry too. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you see both in novels, you, you, you see these much more sexuality coming through. That's uh, the 68, I believe, is the year of Portnoy's Complaint by Philip Roth, Gore Vidal's Myra Breckenridge. So books are changing. Theater is getting a little more open. You've got the musical Hair, where people are standing naked at the end of the, of the first act, you know, in a shadow, sort of. But there you are. You've got the boys in the band. One of the very, very first mainstream gay-oriented, well, comedy melodramas, which is doing a lot of good business. So yeah, the, the the you know sexual mores are changing, and as I say, Hollywood's always late to this game. You know, they're always the last to change. But by '68s, they understand that they've got a new audience that they have to find a way to appeal to. You just mentioned that UA allotted a little bit over a million bucks to the shooting uh, and uh, all the production required for Midnight Cowboy, but the initial budget estimate was $3.2 million, which is obviously uh, more than double what UA wanted to spend on this film. UA says, look, we're okay with going a little bit over that initial estimate, but you need to cut it down to $2.4 million or the film's going to be scrapped altogether. So how did Schlesinger and his team shave off $800,000? Uh, well, according to Jerry Hellman, and this isn't what he told me in an interview, it's what he said on the stage a few years earlier, <laughs> they just simply changed the numbers. Um, but this was a long process. First, they start with 1.1. Then, you know, as they acquire expensive help, if you will, and, and in the end, they decide, for example, to cast Dustin Hoffman, who originally would have been a very cheap date since he had never really been in a movie before. But by 1968, He's been in The Graduate, and suddenly from being a little sort of um, aspiring stage performer off, off, off Broadway, suddenly he's a big star. And, and again, a counterculture star. The Graduate attracts a lot of the younger audience that United Artists is looking for. But Dustin costs a lot more money than he, you know, than they expected. So they're they're bumping up the budget all the way through a little here, a little there. They expect the game, you know, when they give you 1.1, they expect it's going to go up to maybe 1.5 or 1.6. But when Jerry Hellman comes back to them with 3.2, they blow a gasket and they do threaten to hold it up. Jerry says he simply went home that night and he changed the numbers. He, <laughs> and he fully expected that United Artists would catch that, you know, their, their you know, green eye shade guys would would come in and say, wait a minute, how are you going to get it down 800,000? And, you know, and he wouldn't have much of an explanation. Uh, but they let it go. They let it go. And um, and in the end, uh, you know, it cost, it, it probably cost more than 3.2. Everything was expensive. Schlesinger was both wanting to make a popular, entertaining movie, but he had his own vision of this. And he was willing to, you know, to do what it took to get that, the way he wanted it, and it was expensive, no question. It was impressive watching Dustin Hoffman as Ratso. He is really going forward. He's obviously an actor operating with a ton of confidence at that point in time, and it's reflected in the performance and then also the Academy Award nomination he received. Now, his co-star, John Voight, also gets the Academy Award nomination for Best Actor. Was he the obvious first choice to play Joe Buck, though? Not at all, not at all. Um, 
in the novel, Joe Buck is a tall, handsome guy, but dark haired, a little different. Whereas John Voigt, who also he's six foot three, but he's a blonde sort of Dutch boy looking figure. <laughs> uh, and he'd never been in a, in, a, in a major movie of any kind before. So the idea of making him the, the star of this thing, Schlesinger just wasn't interested. And they they auditioned a lot of people. They ended up wanting a guy named Michael Sarazen, who had been in a few good movies at that point. Dark haired, very handsome, French Canadian actor uh, and in fact they they offered it to Sarazen and they and he he wanted to do it and they even started fitting fitting him for costumes but Sarazen was signed to another studio and when they went to that studio and said all right we want this guy we want it on the original money we offered which was a pittance something like seventeen thousand dollars and the studio said oh great we're glad you want him now let's talk about the real you know what we're really going to pay him and they wanted three times as much. Uh, and Jerry Hellman was incensed, or at least pretended to be incensed by this. Uh, and he said that they started looking at the film auditions again of, of Voigt and Sarazen. And every time they looked at it, uh, Voigt looked a little better and Sarazen looked a little worse. And then they called in Dustin Hoffman to, to talk about him because he had performed with all of these folks you know, in the auditions. He had worked with them. Uh, which was a very selfless thing to do. And Hoffman didn't want to choose, obviously, between fellow actors, but he did say something interesting, which was, well, every time I, I'm in the scene with Sarazen, I look at me. When I'm in the scene with Voight, when I'm watching the scene with Voight, you know, on screen, I look at Voight. And that, that cinched it for him. I mean, huh. plus the casting director, a wonderful woman named Marion Doherty, who had pushed both Hoffman and Voigt for the movie, a New York-based, another sort of freelance operator. So Schlesinger finally gave in. And later on, you know, he gave full credit to Marion Doherty and the others when they asked him, well, how did you choose John Voigt? Because I think Voigt's performance is just as special as Hoffman's. And in the end, it's a collaborative performance of the two of them that really makes Midnight Cowboy such a great movie. And Schlesinger said, oh, I didn't choose him. I didn't want him at all. It was Marion Doherty <laughs> and circumstances. And boy, I'm awfully glad, you know, we got him. You're right. It's a great example of uh, just an odd couple pairing where both guys are on top of their game. But initially, Voigt did not sound very Texan. How did he fix that before shooting began? <laughs> I, I, I've seen his uh, about seven minutes of his audition and his accent is wonky. <laughs> He's from Yonkers. He, you know, he happens to be the one guy in this movie who's actually really from New York, basically. And he has an accent, his normal accent, and it still has a lot of Yonkers in it. So he's messing around trying to find some way to do Texas, and he doesn't really get there. I say in the book, he got his accent sounds like he's halfway stuck between Yonkers and, and you know, and Austin, you know, like in a garage in Philadelphia or somewhere. Um, but what happens is once he gets the part, he takes a, a relatively small tape recorder. They were just beginning to have cassette uh, recorders in those days, and he heads down to Big Spring and Midland and, you know, in that era, area. And he starts hanging out in the bars and he even works in a boot store for a couple of days, for a couple of hours, just taking it in. You know, Voight, Voight, like Hoffman, is a detailed, meticulous actor. He's well-trained. He's been, he's been off-Broadway for almost a decade. He's building this character from the inside out. 
slowly watching so he's not only picking up the accent down there but the way people walk and how they treat elderly people and the sort of he's just taking on all this and and on the first day he's not going to have it but he's going to build it over time just like Dustin Hoffman and these two guys challenge each other they support each other Hoffman's the big movie star guy you know and Void is the aspirant but together they create this thing as far as the screenplay is concerned, did the film stay fairly true to the novel, at least as much as one can hope for with a two-hour movie adaptation of a book? Yeah, um, it's amazing how many scenes of the New York scenes are actually in the novel and even some of the dialogue. Um, this is Waldo Salt, the screenwriter, who was not afraid to you know, take on some of this from Jim Hurley. They had to, you know, the book is divided. Half of it takes place in Texas, and we learn about Joe Buck's restless, lonely childhood and and his complicated sexuality. And even there's a rape scene, uh, you know, a gay rape scene, as well as a as a as a rape scene of him and his girlfriend. All those things are not, you know, are are only in the movie in brief flash cuts or flashbacks because there was no way you could make a two-hour movie. That would have all of that in there but nonetheless the spirit of the of the novel and again when when he's in new york many of the scenes are borrowed and and work quite well this is partly you know hurley he had been an actor hurley he was a playwright he knew how to write scenes and so and waldo salt is smart enough the screenwriter is smart enough to to use those as his basics glenn what are stolen shots and how are they a big part of filming especially in new york well, you know, again, we get back to the $1.1 million budget. So, you know, whatever they're going to spend, this means they're not going to be able to seal off half of Manhattan on any given day uh, or even at night, you know, and just put actors out on the streets. They can't afford it. So stolen shots are, where, are when you use the street itself, when you use, you know, watch ordinary people going by and you place your actors among them. And remember, you know, nobody knows who John Voight is at this point. Dustin Hoffman is dressed in the, as this street bum, Ratzel Rizzo, so nobody's really recognizing Hoffman either. They'll put him out there. They'll use a long lens. They'll film from a van, sometimes from a little sort of wooden booth they built. Um, you know, this is how they do those really iconic shots of John Voight walking down Fifth Avenue in a cowboy hat. There weren't a lot of people with cowboy hats in Manhattan, but there were some. I mean, and it's New York, so nobody pays attention to him. And they they do a lot of moments where occasionally they'll use their own people standing around these guys for whatever they want to do. But also a lot of times they're just folks walking down the street. It's so funny how the magic happens sometimes like that. Like it happens out of necessity and all of a sudden you still have these iconic shots all these years later because they just couldn't afford to do it otherwise. Well, and also Schlesinger came originally from a documentary background. Um, he, he, he'd worked at the BBC television doing shorter documentaries, so he was comfortable the you know the technology was changing cameras were movie cameras were getting smaller uh audio was getting better you could you could stretch things out you didn't need you know huge lighting you didn't need all the things that even just 10 years earlier would have made it impossible to film this movie this way but i mean one of the things that midnight cowboy does is, is i'm sure you know is it launches an era of grittier 
more documentary style New York movies like The French Connection and Mean Streets and, you know, and Taxi Driver that are using this new technology and getting us out there. And those give you a New York that is much more real than, say, some very nice movies like Barefoot in the Park or, you know, things from the 60s, but that just can't get on the street. Finally, we're on the street in New York. And you're right. It makes a huge difference. Obviously, Hoffman and Voigt have that natural chemistry on screen. Did they enjoy working together as well? Um, they did. I mean, they were two talented young guys who, were, who knew what they had to do. Um, and so they're talking about their characters constantly, both in the rehearsals for a couple of weeks. And incidentally, Waldo Salt is taping those rehearsals and some of those improv and building some of that into the script. It's Schlesinger's direction. Um, they're also, but even after they start filming, these guys are eating lunch every day, talking to each other, talking about reincarnation and sex and, <laughs> you know, and all the, you know, whatever, the building and building. They drove everybody crazy after a while, because especially Schlesinger, because they wouldn't stop. I mean, you can imagine what Dustin Hoffman's like, you know, his obsession over getting it right. And they, but they would challenge each other too. Occasionally, one would say to the other, "Listen, buddy, if you don't get this right in the next set, they're gonna they're gonna show you know they're gonna focus on me rather than you in this scene." So you know they they would needle each other occasionally. They weren't good friends. They knew about each other from the past. Such different people, but they also knew how important this was to both of them and. Um, I love talking to each of them, incidentally, about the other, about the way they did this and how they feel about it now, because they know it's some of the greatest work that they ever did. And they know that without the other, you know, each one knows that the other one was 50 percent responsible for that. Was there a proudest moment for each actor within this film? The one moment that Hoffman likes to focus on is a very quiet moment about two-thirds of the way through the film where they're about to go upstairs to a sort of psychedelic uh, Andy Warhol-style party. And it's supposedly snowing out, and the Hoffman character, Ratso Rizzo, who is, has pulmonary problems, he can't walk well, he's getting worse as the course of the winter, and, and in fact, he's in real danger. And he's having trouble walking, and he's sweating. And they're down in the foyer, and and Voight, you know, Joe Buck, the Voight character, standing there with him, takes out his comb and tries to comb uh, Ratso's hair and then pulls out his shirt tail to dry off the sweat from Ratso's face. And as he does that, Ratso sort of puts his left hand on, on Joe's uh, bare torso, you know, under the shirt there. And that wasn't in the script. Hmm. That's just something that they did. And John Schlesinger's filming this, and he was stunned by it. Because, as, as Hoffman says, it told you something about the characters that they even they didn't know about what was happening to this very wary partnership between these two loners, these two street people, essentially, how they're coming to rely on each other and how vulnerable they are. It's not a sexual moment at all. It's just a sense of dependence. And I think they're both, you know, they're proud of many things in the movie, but that moment is theirs. They own it. They created it. Schlesinger loved it. And it tells you so much about their characters. Obviously, Dustin Hoffman has uh, learned to appreciate this role in this film over time, but why did he kind of distance himself from the film upon its release? 
That's a really good question. I mean, he wants this role badly. Remember, he's he's done the graduate. He's been Benjamin Braddock, the sort of white bread, you know, young guy, clean shaven. But that's but Dustin Hoffman is an actor's actor, and he wants to show the world he can be a character actor as well. That he's not just Mike, the director Mike Nichols's little creation. So he goes after this part really hard, and he gets it, and he's very very good in it, as you know. But he was worried about it, and a couple of things bothered him. Uh, it's called Midnight Cowboy, and Voight is the central character, and Ratso, Dustin's character, even though he gets top billing in the movie, is really a subordinate to that. And that bothered Dustin a little, that certain things were taken out that he'd been involved in that he thought he'd like to have in there. I think just as important, though, he was worried the film was rated, eventually came out as an X-rated film, and that worried him. Um, and also when he went to a couple of early previews, he said he watched as some people walked out on the movie at a certain point, you know, when the, uh, a, there's a gay sex scene in the balcony of a sleazy movie theater uh, with Void and, Bo and young Bob Balaban as a, and this little moment that that disgusted some people and they left. And so Hoffman's thinking, God, it's X rated. People are walking out. I'm in a porn, you know, we're going to be in a porno movie. He he said he really respected and loved the movie, but he was afraid it just uh, wouldn't go. So he distances himself for a while. But then, surprise, surprise, the movie not only gets very good reviews for the most part, it does very well at the box office. In large part, I would add, I think, because Dustin Hoffman's in it and he's he's already become a star. I went to it to see Dustin Hoffman do his thing and, and to see Benjamin Braddock now in this, you know, playing the street bum was so, you know, amazing. So the movie's doing well. They both get nominated for Academy Awards. So does John Schlesinger and the others. And Dustin Hoffman returns to loving Midnight Cowboy without guilt. Although it was thankfully reversed, why did Midnight Cowboy get that X rating initially? Well, well, that's that was the biggest surprise for me to find out what that was really about. Um, it had actually been rated R by the ratings board uh, because those folks recognized that it was a very high quality film, even though it was, you know, on the edge. There's no nudity in it, really. But but, you know, gay sex, straight sex, there, there was a lot of things that made it sort of cold and feel transactional. The scenes, they were meant to be that way. Um, so they rated R, but you know we're back in the in the late '60s. It's an era when when homosexuality is under conventional wisdom is still considered some kind of you know mental illness. The American Psychiatric Association doesn't change its classification for like till 1973. Um, gay people, you know, homosexuality is almost considered like a disease, like something and and a contagious disease. It's COVID-19. You can pass it on to young people and if you and you could could be cured and if you refuse to be cured obviously then you're a pervert you know all this kind of mentality and that included the head of united artists a guy named arthur krim who who is worried about it and he takes it he takes an eminent psychiatrist psychoanalyst in new york and shows it to him and the guy confirms yeah well these scenes are troubling and, you know, they may convince, I don't know, young people uh, to turn gay. So incredible as it is, Arthur Krim rates it X without telling anybody. Everybody assumes the rating board's done it. Then it goes out and, and United Artists even 
takes its advertising campaign and uses the X rating to say, whatever you've heard about Midnight Cowboy is true. <laughs> Which, again, attracts people like me, you yeah. know, who are looking for movies that are out there. It helps bring in the young <laughs> audience that they want. But it does have problems. You can't advertise in a lot of newspapers. You can't, you know, a lot of movie houses won't show an X rating. So when the movie wins best, you know, best picture and Schlesinger wins best director, they go back to the board and say, okay, how about an R? And the board says, well, we already rated it R. Of course you can have an R. They don't even discuss the matter. You know, um, I talked to someone who was at these, you know, a board member at these meetings. They gave it an R and that's what it has today. How much of a but shock? It, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Glenn. No, I just wanted to add, Trey, that's the kind of thing I was that, that really interested me because I'm using the movie to reflect the era it was made in. And to see attitudes about homosexuality in liberal New York, in this place that sh where there should have been some empathy at the very least, um, you know, to see what things were like and how hard they were, that to me was very revealing. And that's exactly what the book tries to do. Gives you the making of the one of this incredible movie, but also tries to illustrate how that movie portrays the times. And, and that's what the X rating was about. Well, I think you did a phenomenal job of that, Glenn. And how much of a shock was it when Midnight Cowboy actually won Best Picture at the 1970 Oscars? You know, it's interesting. Uh, the Oscars were beginning, you know, the Academy had added some younger members that year. So you never know. John Schlesinger's a Brit and, and, and you know, and, and, you know, had a British accent and British directors were doing well at the Oscars. Uh, Julie Christie, who he directed in Darling and won Best Actress a few years earlier. Still, I, I, you know, it was it was a long shot. I mean, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was kind of the in-house favorite. Um, which was nominated as well. But, you know, when you look back on it, you can see why Hollywood is willing to roll the dice on Midnight Cowboy. The reviews were good. The box office was good. And people were, you know, trying to give an image of a different Hollywood. Did James Leo Hurley, of course, the author of the book that the film was based on, did he like the movie? He, yeah, he was tickled by it. He really, he, he really wanted to help do the screenplay, and they kept him away from that just because they, they feared he would want to keep too much in. Um, he had some questions. There's a scene toward the end, which is in the novel, a scene of violence involving Joe Buck beating a, up someone while trying to get the money to get his sick friend down to Florida. It's a nasty scene. It's nasty in the novel. Jim thought that went a little too far. I don't know what he would have done with it. But essentially, I think he was happy with the movie. He understood it was an important movie. He loved the acting. He loved some of the scenes that weren't in the novel that, that are in the book, like the I'm walking here moment with Razzo Rizzo, you know. Um, so, yes, in the end, uh, Jim was up and down about this, but generally I think he liked it. Two more questions, Glenn. First, who benefited the most from Midnight Cowboy's success and why? Well, that's a good question. I mean, everybody involved in it benefited in various ways. Harry Nielsen had a big hit out of everybody's talking, you know, sold millions of records and, and established him. And even though Harry didn't write the song, you know, it was a, a signature thing for him. Schlesinger and Hellman made a vast profits because every time they would jumped up the budget and asked for more money for themselves. United Artists said, no, we're not going to give you guys any more money, but we'll give you, you know, 60% of the, of the net 
nobody expected the movie would ever make a diamond profit so <laughs> they became millionaires off it it uh, it gave dustin hoffman exactly what he wanted this feeling that he could do any kind of role and it made john Voight a star so you figure it out they all benefited and finally, Glenn, more than half a century later, as we sit here in 2021, what is your favorite thing about this film? Oh, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I I, I love many things about it, but it's the characters and the acting that are the key. And not just Hoffman and Voigt, but the, the other people who are in individual scenes with Voigt, like Sylvia Miles, who plays this aging hooker, and he's he thinks he's going to take her for 20 bucks and she takes him for 20 bucks. And Bob Balaban, who we mentioned earlier, and then Barnard Hughes. The acting is extraordinary. And the heart of the movie is the relationship between these two of God's loneliest creatures who have to come together to survive and how it changes them and how they handle it. I think that's why we still want to watch this movie in 2021. Glenn Frankel is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and best-selling author of The Searchers and High Noon. His newest book is Another Good One, Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic. Glenn, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this wonderful book. Trey, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy it through bookshop.org. Bookshop.org connects readers with independent bookstores. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.